welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. Literally last night, when he was putting the headsets on me, he said, "Um, you know, can you remove your earrings? And I said, no. It's like, no, I, I actually can't. So you're going to have to work with this. And uh, I said, well, he asked me. He didn't say, remove your earrings. Then I would have done that. That was hilarious video. That was, that video was hilarious. I told him, I said, I am not offended as long as you give me a copy of that. My boys will go crazy. They will think that is ridiculous. Okay. So I love doing closing session because I get to actually put a bow around everything that has happened, everything that's been said, everything that's been created. I don't know if you understand just how amazing soil God thinks you guys are. I mean, you are a Viking if you live here. Some people are like, I'm African-American. I am not a Viking. No, I'm sorry. If you choose to live in Minnesota, you are a Viking. So Vikings are some of my favorite people on the face of the earth. So I think they're amazing. And um, I love coming here. Every time I've come to Minnesota, I've just seen God taking the women from strength to strength. There's something very unique about the soil here. There's something very specific about the people here. And so it's an incredible privilege, uh, you know, to, to come here and minister. I love it. And um, I love what Pastor Rob said in the last sessions. You know, I talked to him. I said, there's something about when a father comes along and echoes what the mother has been saying, when the, the man and the woman both begin to say the same thing, then there's that power of dominion. There's that divine echo. There's that expression of permission. And he gave you practical applications on how to be able to do those things and to understand when it's wrong and when it's right to obey authority. Because submission means what? What does submission mean? What do you think submission means? You're probably not even married. What do you think? Okay, okay, so you, I'm sorry if I flashed you. Okay, um, what do you think submission means? Like giving in. Giving in, okay, giving in. Okay, what do you think submission means? Cute one with the t-shirt. I don't know. Yeah, that's awesome. You don't need to know. What do you think submission means? Agreeing to go along with someone else's. Agreeing to go along with somebody else's. See, now this is, this is why we need to talk about this. Sub means what? Thank you. Mission means what? Assignment. Submission means under assignment. It doesn't mean you give yourself away. It doesn't mean you yield to another unless that's the best thing for the mission. See, my husband and I have a mission. We have a mission to love each other better every single year. We have a mission to raise children who are disciples, taught of the Lord, great is their peace, and that are for signs, wonders, and miracles. We have a mission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have missions. You do not submit to people that you are not assigned to do life with. So if you are working for an employer, you submit to your employer because you guys are all part of the same mission, right? But you don't just submit because you're a woman. And I heard something very powerful this week. 
Submission isn't about rank. It's about order. And so we need to be in order. It's not saying women are less than, therefore get behind your man and shut up. It is, you have a different order. You have a place, you have an insight, you have what Pastor Rob said, intuition. Intuition is, is a, something that the women have. Also, you know, endurance. I'm sorry. They did this big study with some Viking men, men that didn't even speak English, had the audacity to say that labor didn't hurt. And they put this like machine on them that contracted their muscles. And you know, come on. They don't have uteruses. They were not really feeling it like we felt it. But these big strapping Viking men, after an hour and a half, were like, stop, stop. They were writhing, writhing on the table. And then there was this British uh, television host. You should watch it. It's hilarious. And he did it for like three hours. And then he just said, let the women win. Let them win. I want an epidural. And they're like, you can't have one. I mean, he was like. It's one thing about being shot. It's the other thing about being shot every minute, you know, like labor. Anyway, so anyway, women, you have intuition. You have intuition. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. They say that 80% of the time that a child is either molested or abducted by somebody known to the family, the mother knows who it is. But often she will have pushed aside her bad feeling, her warning about that person, and reasoned it away. You can't do that. We need you to be intuitive. We need you to be creative. God created woman as the answer to the very first problem. What was the first problem? It is not good for man to be alone. That was even before the fall. It was not good for the man to be alone. You are a God-breathed answer to worldwide problems. It is the very reason why God crafted you. He said, there is a problem that the woman can answer. So the man's DNA is X and Y and the woman is XX. Women have the power to multiply unless they are broken. Then when you take something, you multiply something whole by something that is broken, it ends up dividing That is why God has such attention right now on his daughters. He's saying, I need them whole because I need them to come alongside the men and do what only they can do to begin to multiply what I want to see happen in the earth. You saw the family picture. John Bevere, only son, six children, five sisters, name going to die off. I was like, you give me that last name and I will give you back four sons with that last name. And I'm even claiming credit for the grandchildren. Okay. So the truth is multiply. That's what you're supposed to do. So pastor Rob told you, here's five things you need to do so that the God gift inside of you can begin to multiply. I want to talk to you about some practical things. Last night I told you to wake up last night. I told you that whenever women begin to gather with pure, simple motives. Whenever there is a company of virtuous and capable women, then God begins to do something exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask, hope, pray, or believe for. And I talked to you about you being stunning, about you understanding your strength, and and about you waking up and realizing that you acting 
like you're not a God idea is a slap in your father's face. When my children come in from school, you know, they, I used to, you know, when they were little, I'd be like, oh my gosh, look at you. Did anybody tell you you were yummy today? They're like, mom, nobody talks about us like we are food except for you. And I'm like, well, they should. You're amazing. Come over here. Let me just eat you. But you know, the truth is, the truth is something happens as they go down the line and people start to say things that shrink their worlds. You have to be really careful about listening what other people say about you. And in this day of social media and Twitter and Facebook, if you listen to what everybody else says about you, you will forget who you are. Only God has the right to declare certain things over your life. So now I'm going to be really open and I'm going to be very transparent. And I'm actually going to talk about a sword that I want you to be able to wield first and foremost in your life. And it's not a sword picked up in violence, in the on guard, or aha, my granddaughter walks around the house going, hiya, hiya. And we're like, oh my gosh, Sophie, she's two and a half. She can't even pee pee in the toilet, but she's running through the house with a sword. Anyway, so it's, it's awesome. But, but the truth is she has absolutely no idea what she's wielding. And the sword I'm going to talk to you about today is not one lifted up. It is not one extended. It is one laid down. It is an act called fealty. It's when you put something at God's feet and he gives it back to you in greater strength. I'm going to talk to you about the sword of forgiveness and restoration. And I'm going to open up my world in the hope that maybe in my story, you might catch a glimpse of your own. I was not raised Christian. I was raised to be a good heathen. My parents were Catholics. We went to mass occasionally. We went to confession maybe twice a year before we went on airplanes and before Easter. Anyway, that was spring break, both kind of. Anyway, so we, we, you know, we were good Catholics and bad people. And, you know, and anyway, I got saved at 21. I had never heard the gospel. Hello, an American who has never heard the gospel. John invited me out to a picnic. I heard the gospel for the first time. And I said, I want to do this. What do I need to do? Light some candles or something? I want to do this Christian thing. And he was like, I'm not done preaching. And I began to panic because I didn't know how to become a Christian. And I thought this rapture thing's going to happen. This guy is going to leave the park bench and I'm going to get my head cut off. I had seen part of a thief in the night, but not all of it. And I wasn't sure what to do. And so I remember just panicking. He, he prayed with me and thank God, John prayed with me a gospel of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. He did not say that Jesus was going to be real when I died. He said Jesus wanted to be real in that very moment because I was going to die. And the life, <coughs> excuse me, the life I lived from that moment forward was not my own, that I had been bought with a price. And so I remember that night getting born again. 
I'm spending most of the night looking for the book of Paul <coughs> because John had said, Paul said this and Paul said that. And so I had a way Bible in my college dorm room. I stood it on its spine. I was like, please God, open to the book of Paul. I can't find the book of Paul. And it opened up to Corinthians where it said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I thought I had found the only book of Paul. I was like, oh my gosh, I found Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I didn't know until later that he had written the majority of the New Testament, but I felt like it was a God moment for me. And I realized my whole purpose in life was to bring glory to his name. And I began to read the word. I began to devour it. Nobody had to tell me to do devotions because I was devoted. That was it. Nobody said read five verses. I read chapters and you know, it just, it would vary, but I meditated on the word. I listened to the word. I remember going on a road trip and I was playing tapes and praying in tongues all at once, trying to make up for lost time. When you haven't gotten saved here 21, I'm like, I got to somehow do it all together at once and busting out scriptures out loud in my car. I, I laid hold of the promises of God and I was at church pretty much every time it opened. And we were living in Dallas at the time. John and I were newly married, didn't have any children yet. And I would be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights. I would volunteer on the prayer line until they discovered I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And they pulled me off of it. They're like, uh, you know, you don't, you don't know, you're not, you know, you don't know scriptures. You know, I had like five. Anyway, so, um, <clears throat> so I remember just anything and everything I was willing to do. And um, I was in one of the particular conferences. I don't even know who the speaker was. Christy might remember, but we were, we were uh, in a season where this ministers would come through and minister. And I remember one of the ministers said something to the effect of, if your life is not compelling enough to get your entire family saved, then you don't have any business preaching the gospel. Well, my mother was saved, my brother was saved, but my father was, his picture was like where you looked up at the word heathen. In the Bible, there was like a picture of my father. I mean, he was completely a perfect heathen. He was the antithesis of Christian. He could not even form sentences without using God's name in vain. I mean, he was just like the picture of a non-Christian. And so he became my mission to get him saved. I remember we invited him to come visit us. And uh, really, you know, we didn't really want to spend time with him. We wanted him to, you know, get saved so he could stop blocking us from the ministry. And I remember he, you know, like telling the intercessors, my dad's going to be coming on Sunday. Let's anoint the chair. Let's all point at him. Let's all like have the pastor make constant eye contact with my dad. You know, let's just all like stretch forth hands and pray for him to get saved. And the pastor was so precious. I mean, he like preached a real, you know, dynamic message. And at the end of the message, he gave a compelling altar call. You know, he was like, you know, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And uh, he had told everybody to bow their heads, but I kind of glanced over. My dad had refused to bow his head. He was making eye contact with the pastor. And my dad basically looked back at him like, I would go to hell and you could go there too. He was not like repentant. I think at that point I started crying. The pastor was like, okay, I'm going to help Lisa out. He made the suggestion that perhaps the person that you were hoping would get saved might want you just to take their hand and lead them down to the front. And yeah, it was a fatal error. I remember grabbing my dad's hairy Rolex arm and being like, hey dad, 
Do you want to come down to the front with me in your leisure suit and no shirt and your Italian horn? Uh, you know, let's, 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 take, let's take it down. Dad, you're going straight to hell. You need to come down to the altar with me. And my dad stood up, released a string of cuss words, and stormed out of the church in front of about 5,000 people. We found him smoking in the parking lot. He was really happy to leave John and I and go back to his Florida home. Uh, we were in Dallas, and yet I'm persistent. And so what did I do? I called churches in Orlando where my dad was living, who were affiliated with our church, and I gave them my father's unlisted number and his address, and they began showing up at his doorstep, passing out tracts, calling him, and he would call me and cuss me out every single time there was some kind of intervention. He'd be like, Lisa, get your beep dogs off of me. And I'd be like, Dad, you need to get saved. He'd be like... I'm going to go to hell. He was like happy about it. And I was like, okay. So then I decided, okay, the strangers witnessing to my father didn't, you know, didn't help me holding his hand during service, not working. I am going to fast and pray until he gets saved. I'm not going to eat again. Okay. Thank God he released me from that vow because I would have died. But I remember starting really strong on a Friday night, dancing to Jehovah Jireh, my provider in, uh, you know, we just didn't have very many good options back then. And, uh, you know, Jehovah Jireh, you remember that? You could do the grapevine dance. Remember that was like, that was, that was Christian. And this was Christian. That was it. That was it. Nothing, nothing that involved hips, nothing. So I remember kind of grapevine dancing around my room, my, my apartment to Jehovah Jireh. John was away. I um, like got my Bible. I wasn't going to sleep. You know, Larry Lee had asked me, could I not tarry for an hour? So I was going to tarry for like 20 hours. And anyway, I was Bible, you know, on, on, you know, on the, my bed praying for my dad. And I think I fell asleep and then I woke up panicked. Oh my gosh, I fell asleep. And so I positioned myself. It was strategic. I had my Bible open on my bed and I kneeled like this with my arms over my bed. So if I fell asleep, my, my head would go right into the word of God. And so I, I was like, like this praying for my dad and and, you know, the sun came up, and I was staring at my phone. This is before portable phones. I was staring at my phone, like, praying that my dad had had a really bad dream, that maybe he'd have a small car wreck where he would realize, you know, the, the risk he was running and call me and say, oh, my gosh, an angel just appeared to me, and I am going to get saved. But as the sun began to set that night, none of that had happened yet. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm starting to get really hungry and my knees are really hurting and I've drooled on my Bible and I just don't know how much longer I can do this. And I remember God saying to me, stop it. And I was like, what? And he was like, stop it. He said, I love your father more than you love your father. Give him to me. I said, like, do you know my dad? Because like, I'm a, he's not very nice. He said, you say you believe my word. You don't act like you believe my word. The Bible says in Acts 16, 31, put it up there. There we go. And they said, this is the King James. I'm not making this up. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved 
and thy house. That's your household. And he said, give your dad to me. So I remember that day I wrote my dad's name into my King James Bible right there. Acts 16, 31, Joseph, John, Toscano, saved. I believe. I receive it. And then God said, now stop being weird and just love him. Honor the father you wish you had instead of trying to change the one you have. And so I remember I had my firstborn son and we moved from Dallas to Orlando and I would invite my father over for dinner. I kind of hoped that maybe he'd be around my son and it would open up his heart as, you know, a grandfather and he would want to like come into our world and be more sensitive and be more open to the gospel. But he, but he wasn't. Then I had my second son and I invited him again into our world and hoping maybe my second son would do that, but it didn't. Then my dad lost his job. My dad was already an alcoholic, but when he lost his job, he had nothing to frame his days. And he began drinking first thing in the morning, and he would drink all day and all night until he just passed out. And I remember he moved away, and we would, we would put our kids in the car and drive down to go visit him. But visiting him was so frightening for all of us. My dad would say the most horrific things over my children where we would actually basically drive home all the way back to Orlando, like holding onto our kids' feet in the car seat, breaking things off of them. We'd be like, what else did he say? I break that curse. I apply the blood of Jesus. You're blessed going in, blessed coming out. And we were like, seriously, who says this stuff over their grandchildren? Like for an example, when Alec was little, he knocked his tooth out. He knocked his big front tooth out. And I had heard that if your child knocks your tooth out, you either put it under their tongue or you put it in milk. So I put it in milk because I knew he'd swallow it. I put it in milk, drove him to the dentist, and I said, put the tooth back in. And the dentist was like, well, you know, he's only two. He doesn't really need his tooth. I'm like, he needs his tooth. He's got to be able to form words. Put it back in. The dentist was like, it won't take. I'm like, it will take. Put it back in. So he put it back in. It took. The dentist was shocked. It went from gray to white. It was awesome. I told my dad this story about six months later. And he's like, the little beep will just knock it out again. And I said, no, we won't hung up the phone, and I heard a scream. And my son had somehow walked into the doorframe with his tooth. I mean, not his nose, not his cheekbone, his tooth. And there was like a imprint of his tooth. He knocked his tooth out on the doorframe. And every time I would go in and out of my house, I had to see Alex's tooth in the doorframe and think, why would a... Father, curse his kids. What is wrong with him? I remember one particular Christmas, we loaded up. At that point, I had four kids. Well, it was actually the day after Christmas, because when your parents are divorced, you do Christmas with your mother, then Christmas with your father. And so we had done Christmas with my mother. We'd loaded up our kids. We're doing Christmas with my father. And, you know, we drove three hours in a van with four kids. And to be honest with you, by the time I got there, I didn't even feel like a Christian. I was just like, boys, get out of the car. Just get out of the van. And they had rollerblades. They were so excited to show. That was one of their Christmas gifts. They were going to show Papa how they could rollerblade. We had brought gifts for him. We were like, just, just get out and rollerblade in the parking lot. Daddy and I will go get Grandpa. And we, we knocked on his door, and he didn't answer. So he lived on the beach. So we thought, okay, he's probably at the beach. So we went around to the beach, and he was on his back porch. We looked up and down the beach. He wasn't there. And I, I just happened to see something kind of flapping out of the corner of my eyes, and I went over to the sliding glass door and my dad had shoved a piece of paper 
between the doors and said, I changed my mind. I don't want to see you guys. And I stood there, and John came up behind me, and I, I, I like, looked at it like, what? And John was like, honey, it, it's okay. And I'm like, no, this is not okay. This is not okay. We come to visit your parents. They don't go, let's hide. Let's hide and see what happens. See how long it takes them to get back in the van. I'm like, this is not okay. This is weird. This is wrong. I'm so embarrassed. What am I going to tell the boys? And John was like, I'll take care of it. So he goes out in the party. He's like, boys, pee in the trees. We're all getting back into the van. (laughs) Papa's not here. We're just going to drive on back. So they all load back. And about halfway back, I started getting so embarrassed. I thought, why do I have to have the weird family? And I began to cry. And on and off, I'm not like talking about sweet tears like you have in the presence of God. I'm talking about snot. I'm talking about big tears without tissue in your car. I'm talking about <laughs> with, with, with four little boys, like uncomfortable. Like they begin to pat you. They're like, okay, okay. What were they saying? Dad, make her stop. Make her, make her stop. We, we don't, this is awkward. I put John on a plane to Sweden early the next day. So we'd come home, packed everything, put him on a plane. And I came home and I was anything but okay. Put my baby down for a nap, locked my other three children outside, (laughs) put on some worship music and began to cry out to God and said, you know, I, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And I remember the old school Hillsong song. You're a father to the fatherless came on. And for the first time, for some reason, I realized I was fatherless. And I began to weep. I began to cry. Not because I didn't have a father, but because the father I had did not want me. And I remember giving myself completely over to the pain of that moment. And I have to be honest with you, at the crescendo, of my agony, I heard God laugh. I'm like, that is a highly inappropriate reaction (laughs) to what is happening here in the carpet. (laughs) And he said to me, you are looking at this all wrong. He said, when you are utterly abandoned by your father, then you are completely adopted by me. He said, what you see as rejection, I see as adoption. He said, John needs something, you can talk to his dad. You need something, you come straight to me. I remember getting up off the carpet and thinking only God could look at that situation and somehow flip it around for good. Where I was like, new favorite, direct favorite, direct line to God. Sorry, John, you got to go through your dad and then maybe God. But I'm like, direct line, direct line. (laughs) My father's condition went from bad to very, very dangerous. He started to have dementia from the alcohol. He didn't know if I was his daughter, an ex-wife, or his girlfriend. And it became very sexually inappropriate when I would come to visit him. And so my husband said to me, Lisa, you can't go without me. 
you're going to have to take me with you if you go to see your father. And my oldest son said, you know what, mom, I'll go with you. He said, I've always believed that when grandfather sees the man I've grown up to be, he'll become a Christian. And I was like, you will come with me. You will be the only one who comes with me. All right. Awesome, Addison. And uh, a year or two went by, and I didn't just bring my son. I brought he and his beautiful wife and my father's first great-grandchild, Asher, to come see my dad. He was in an alcohol-related dementia center at that point. And we came in, and he came out of his room, and he looked at me, and he wasn't sure who I was, and I knew that was going to happen, so I had brought pictures. I brought all the Christmas cards that we send him every year. I brought pictures of he and Addison interacting when Addison was two, and, and, you know, kind of the history of the course of how he would know us. And I had spread it all over the table. My dad sat down, and we talked to him for a while, and I could tell he had no clue, but he started to look at the pictures, and the pieces started to come together. And he picked up this one in particular picture of he and Addison. Addison was probably two at the time. My dad was building something for him. And he pointed to himself in the picture, and he pointed to himself. And I said, yeah, that's you. And then he pointed to the two-year-old Addison, and he pointed to the man Addison. And I said, yeah, that's him. And that's his baby. And that's his wife. And I realized that my father was there right in that moment. And I thought, what do I say to this man who is on the edge of eternity? And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, Tell him he was a good dad. I thought, that's a lie. I'm not, I'm not telling him he was a good dad. He was a horrible dad. I heard he was as good as he knew how to be. Tell him he was a good dad. Oh, but I'm stubborn. I was like, no. You know what? He didn't want to be a good dad. He didn't buy a book on how to be a good dad. He didn't make friends with the good dads down the street. He didn't even try. I'm not telling him he was a good dad. Can I just tell you a lesson I've learned the hard way that you don't need to learn the hard way? When God puts something on the table, he leaves it there. You can argue. You can say, I'm not doing it. He doesn't take it off the table. So I remember grabbing hold of my dad's hands and putting him up between us so that I kind of could get his attention. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, Dad, you were a good dad. And it was like a thousand volts of electricity went through his body and he began to shake and his eyes filled up with tears and he began to kiss the back of my hands And he formed the only two words he spoke the entire time we were there. He said, thank you. And when he said, thank you, my oldest son stood up. And he walked around behind my father. And he put hands on either one of my father's shoulders. And he said, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that his debt is canceled. 
we forgive him. He owes us nothing. See, I don't know if you understand that in Christ, you have the right to retain or remit sins of other people who may not even ask for your forgiveness. And we prayed my dad out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And he nodded with every word, with every phrase, his tears pouring down. I have to be honest with you, I had never seen my father cry. Never. I had an eye removed to cancer. My mother had breast cancer. I never saw my father cry. I remember my father, though, picking me up and putting me on the wall. I love one and say, what do you say to me, girl? And I'd be like, nothing, nothing. 100% Sicilian. Never cried. He wept like a baby. The presence of God invaded that very scary place. He was undone. Julie was crying. Addison was crying. Asher, thank God, was not crying. And we <laughs> put my dad to bed, kissed him. It was like kissing a little three-year-old boy. Kissed him goodnight. And as I was walking out the door, I thought, you know, I wonder if they have all of my updated contact information. I need to make sure they have that. And so and I, I wrote it out on a yellow sticky, and he walked out of his room. Walked right past us. Sat down and began to watch Lawrence Welk. Had no idea who we were. I had that one moment in time. A year goes by and I begin to feel uncomfortable. I begin to feel like my dad's dying or something. I begin to have dreams that my dad's dying. My aunt and uncle had gone to visit. My mom knew about it. I called her. I said, you know, how was dad's health when, when Aunt Carol and Uncle Phil were there? And he goes, she said, Lisa, that man will outlive all of us just out of spite. She said, I don't know why you're concerned about your father. And I was like, I, I just don't, I, there's something not right. And she said, no, he's fine. New Year's Eve, 2011. I'm cutting, well, 2010, almost 2011. I'm cutting vegetables, watching television. And there's a newscaster on. And she begins to talk about her father, who had died that year. And as I'm cutting the vegetables, watching this complete stranger, I realized I was crying. And I thought, why am I crying? I don't know this woman. I don't know her father. What's my, is this perimenopause? Am I going to be crying all the time? This is going to be so incredibly awkward. And then I heard the Holy Spirit say, no, you're crying because this is the year you'll say goodbye to your father. Six days later, I'm in Canada. Wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning. Something's not right. Something's not right. Something's not right. Something's not right. I pray. I, I read my Bible. I listen to music. I can't shake it. I do a bunch of television shows. I can't shake it. I get to the airport. I begin to look at my phone messages. There's one from my youngest son. Of course, I want to make sure my son's okay. He's like, Mom, Dad lost my retainer at that hotel. I'm like, okay, that's not, that's not what I'm feeling an alarm in my spirit about. There was a bunch from the orthodontist office saying that we had to pay for this one. You know, it was like all these different things. And there was one number I just, I just didn't recognize. And I thought, you know, I'll get, through, I'll get through customs and then I'll call that number. I'm walking on the jet bridge. I call the number and I hear, as you know, your father is dying. I'm like, I just hit the call back. I was like, what, what do you mean as I know? I have no idea my father is dying. And she said, yeah, we started the morphine drip on him last night about 2 a.m. And she said, if you want to say goodbye to him, you better come right now. And I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on like a regional jet flying from Toronto to, to, to Denver. And she, she said, well, I'm, I'm on the way to the hospice. 
I'll, I'll get there and, and I'll put my cell phone up to his ear and I'll tell you what his, what his condition is. So while people are putting their bags in the overhead and the flight attendant's telling everybody to get out of the aisle, I'm saying goodbye to my father. I'm saying, Dad, this is Lisa. I love you. I remember you're the one that used to take me fishing. You taught me to swim. Dad, I'm coming tomorrow. But if you can't wait, you can go. Fly home for three hours. Drive for an hour and a half through a blizzard. Finally get a hold of my brother. Tell him what's going on. Gather my four sons. Tell them I'm going to have to go the next morning. I'm only home for 15 minutes. And he was gone. January, February, March, April, and May of 2011. I traveled and preached the faithfulness of God. Then in May 2011, I met the faithfulness of God. I was doing a conference with Carrie Weens, and there was a crowd of women much like this. And yet out of this crowd, I kept just seeing one person. I saw her in my first session. I saw her in my breakout session. I saw her in my hotel lobby. I thought, well, I'm going to go talk to her. So I walked over and I, I said, hi, I, I couldn't help but notice you. And she grabbed a hold of my hands. I started to say, I'm Lisa. And she said, Lisa, I'm April. We spoke on the phone. I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I don't know any Aprils in Jacksonville, Florida. She said, no, no, I've driven here six hours to tell you about your father. She said, I'm the one who called you the day he was dying. She said, I have been his social worker for five years. She said, your dad was a horrible patient. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of I remember hearing that. And she said he stole a car. He ran away from the first place. He was kicked out of that place. He beat up other patients. I'm like, okay, yes. Um, he was beat up by the police. I'm like, okay, yeah, thank you for traveling and telling me all this. And she said, but you need to know, for the last year, your father was an angel. And she said, every time he saw me, he would take my hand and he would kiss it. Do you know what I believe? I believe when I told my father, Dad, you were a good dad. He heard heaven is open. You can be forgiven. See, God loves those we call enemies. He loves the unlovely and the unloving. He does not love or approve of what they do, but just like us, in Christ, he loves them before they even turn and love him. I believe God loved my father long before he was my father. When he was a young boy, child of immigrant parents who spoke no English, when his father died when he was 10, and my grandmother worked as a prostitute to support her five children. She had to give away her daughter. I believe that my father cried out to God in the way that he knew how to cry out to God for help. I also believe that my father cried out to God when his stepfather beat him. And he ended up running away from home at 15 and lying about his age and joining the Navy. See, before I put any swords in your hand, I would be very remiss to not first be sure there are no daggers in your heart. I'm not 
trying to diminish or downplay any of the attacks on your life. Say that they weren't important. Say that they weren't painful. I'm trying to prepare you for your future. Because the truth is, you're here today. And no matter what was done to you before you came here today, you're here. You're here and life and strength and promise has been spoken over you. And so you have to make a choice. Will you be merciful? Because God has been merciful. Will you be gracious? Because God has been gracious to you. Maybe your issue isn't your father. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your husband or ex-husband. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a brother or a sister. But all these tacks were before. And now we stand in the now. God forgives us before we ask. And he asks us to forgive even as he has forgiven us. Which means we have the power to forgive other people before they ask. He loved us before we loved him. And in Christ, he caught you before you ever even fell. I judged my dad until the moment I released him and spoke what God said to him, that he was a good dad. So I need to ask you some questions. I'm going to ask you if you can be brave. I want you to stand to your feet right now. I want to know, where might the king send you? Where might he have you go and speak words that don't make sense in light of what was before, but need to be said now? Where might you go that he might anoint you to be an agent of healing? Remember, I told you we're going to live by the power of a sword to set others free. I don't know what words you need to craft. I don't know what letters you need to write. I don't know what emails need to be sent. But I do know that you have the power to forgive. And there is nothing more empowering than forgiving other people. Say, Heavenly Father. Put your hands up. Say, Heavenly Father. I am ready to be an instrument of adoption restoration and divine appointments I choose love because love never fails I didn't write the beginning of my story but I will write the end of it all right I've got you at your feet I'm going to put a commission on you chosen daughter of the most high God I need you to turn from your past Deny its limitations. Turn from the reflection of the world and begin to reflect God's love, his faith, his hope, his word, and his grace in your life. Daily, remember his faithfulness in your past because it will be a strength for you in the future. Develop your ability to listen and then obey the Holy Spirit. Draw near to God and he will draw ever so near to you. Recite his verses with bold confidence and expectation that he will do all that he promised to do. In Jesus' name, be a daughter of the Most High God with a sword in her hand and a hero 
to this generation in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. It's been an honor and a privilege to speak hope and strength and life into your world. You guys have been so receptive from the very first moment I got up here and talked about bloating. You just opened your heart. And uh, I love that. I'm proud to be your sword sisters. I'm proud to know that the women in Minnesota are going to choose triumph, are going to choose love. They're going to choose future instead of the limitations of your past. God bless you.